0: Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 33. I will tell you up front, this is a little bit of a review. We have looked somewhat at this subject before, so some of the points are going to sound familiar. Um, In the flesh, I would think, I've only been here two years. I shouldn't be repeating sermons yet. Um, And then you can extrapolate the math and think how many sermons you've done in a year and so on, and think, well, is it time? Uh, This... Is a necessity because we need to have the right starting point as we continue this study of the attributes of God. So many of his attributes are hinged on this one subject that we must understand the posture of God. The posture of God. And as we look in Isaiah 33, we are reminded of what it says there in verse 22 For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. For us to understand that those last four words, how indeed he's going to save us. We have to understand his posture. We have to understand, as we looked at last time, our nature. How can one be tied together with the other? And there has to be a justification that takes place in between. Uh, So we look here at the posture of God. What is, as we've talked before, what is the purpose of God's doctrine? And it is that we might identify the attributes of God and pursue holy living and fellowship with Him. Why should the preacher preach the doctrine? Why should the Sunday school teacher teach the doctrine? We can justify that with these words. But why should you desire God's doctrine is what I would prefer that you consider here today. Why should you be desirous of the doctrine of God? A verse we often quote in relation to this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, which says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. You need to understand that phrase. If he was directing it directly to you, I am not, as your pastor, a buffer for it. He's called, he's commanded for you to be holy because he's holy, not because the pastor is, not because truth is proclaimed here. You're to be holy because he is. And we'll explain the process of how we become holy, and it's not uh, a self-righteousness, it's an imputed righteousness and all that. But in context of what Peter writes here, before this verse, he says, because it is written, which tells us that it's written elsewhere in the Word of God, which I want to consider these before we get into our points. Leviticus 11, verses 42 through 45, God is giving the command of what the nation of Israel was to abstain from. And he says, Whatsoever goeth upon the belly, and whatsoever goeth upon all four, or whatsoever hath more feet among all creeping things that creep upon the earth, them ye shall not eat. For they are an abomination. Ye shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creepeth, neither shall ye make yourselves unclean with them, that ye should defile the, be defiled thereby. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye, therefore, ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now it's important in the context of a study through Leviticus what specifically he's telling them to abstain from. But I want you to hear today that we are called to abstain from all appearances of evil. Whatever the Lord says in this verse to be evil, we are to abstain from. This is the command. If he said you shouldn't breathe oxygen and sunlight because he's commanded it, we are not to make an abomination of ourselves and do that which he has commanded us to not do. And that's the reason for the silly example is that the commandment here is to pursue after him. The commandment here is to be holy because he's holy. Furthering his teaching to Moses, the Lord said in Leviticus 19, verses 2 through 4, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Turn ye not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods, I am the Lord your God. Again, they weren't going to be holy because they abstained from eating creeping, crawly things. They weren't going to be holy because they feared every man as mother and father. They would obtain holiness because they were like their father. Because they were pursuing after the father. Not because they abstained from turning unto idols, which might be our greatest weakness but because they followed after and listened and hearkened unto God before all things. Again, Leviticus 20, verse 23, as well as verse 26, it says, And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nation, which I cast out before you. For they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. And ye shall be holy unto me, for I am the Lord. For I, the Lord, am holy, rather. Ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. And there's the secret. We should be holy because we are separate. We should be holy because we've been severed from the world. We should be holy because we are his. This is the command. God's done all the work. Be holy for I am holy. Be mine. Stop trying to be like the world. Stop embracing the things of the world. Stop trying to put Christ back into things he was never in to begin with. And there's more than just Xmas reference there. Abstain from all appearances of evil or the evil one. After discussing last time man's total depravity, understanding where man's posture lies, we must now take a look at God's posture of absolute holiness. First thing to consider is God's free agency. And this is the part that will likely begin to sound familiar. You say to yourself, God is infinitely holy. How then could he sin? This is the error in our logic, not his. For those whom believe they have the free will to invite or accept or choose Christ. Any doctrine of God is going to honor God, not man. Any doctrine of God is going to honor God, not man. When I was Studying when I first surrendered to preach, and Rebecca's grandpa Jim Wilmoth would sit with me and we'd go over things. He used to tell me that was the greatest measuring stick when looking into a doctrine does it honor God or does it honor man? Kind of like what we say about politics today follow the money. In the Bible, follow the honor. Who's receiving it? If it's Pilate, it's not God's doctrine. If it's Herod, it's not God's doctrine. If it's Joe, it's not God's doctrine. Election does not honor man, and man tends to hate it so, but it honors God. There's probably not a whole lot of other doctrines that puts God in the proper seat as election does, and that is, seems to be, in the ministry that I've had, the most hated doctrine of God's. We don't want to give him power. We don't want to think it's up to him, that it's his decision. We don't want to think that there was a time that man wasn't, you know, that time before the foundation of the world. In which decisions were made and man wasn't consulted. Beloved, to say one has free agency does not imply that they sin. It makes sense for that to be our base logic, as man, as we said last time, absolutely does sin every day. Every time opportunity is presented, sin is always present. And depending on the nature of man, if his total depravity is in control, he will sin every single time. It is his nature. Not his free agency. God has free agency to do however he sees fit within his nature. We know from his word that he's absolutely holy in all things. We referenced a part of it in Titus 2 in Sunday school here today. As we see in our text, this being his nature, all that he is capable of doing is absolutely holy. He cannot sin, he cannot stray, he cannot lie, he cannot fail to be absolutely holy. You see how it's such a great contrast to look at the nature of God compared to the nature of man? You see how we can't have a starting point of what we think we know to be true and then try to understand God? This is why the Bible is so important. It's the only access we have to what God is actually like. And if we bring to it a starting point of, well, it can't be like that because that's unattainable for me. And he can't be like that. I mean, the the favorite fallback is he made us in his image, so we must be exactly alike. That's not what the Bible says. And image is limited. He didn't make us through and through infinitely holy. He didn't make us through and through uh, infinitely powerful. We are not little gods. We are creation We are creatures that has a creator, and he is way more than we ever could be. God being immutable remembers no other former nature, for he has always been absolutely holy. There's no old God nature that he wakes up and struggles with every day in which he has to say, not today, Satan. I'll not give in today, Satan. When we see Satan tempting the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry, Jesus was not once considering giving in to satan now if we're honest with ourselves what satan laid out man if that was before us if we were truly in that situation we'd probably struggle a lot how do you know that pastor because we're in that situation every day truly truly you shall not surely die go ahead and have this little sin enjoy this little sin keep this little precious thing no one will ever know the bible says your sin will find you out Your Bible says that your nature is totally depraved. But God has no old man nature, no old God nature. Does God have the free will to sin and then pardon himself? To live however he sees fit on Friday, wash himself white as snow on Sunday, and then maybe show up for worship services? Could God lose his holiness and obtain it again and lose it again and obtain it again and lose it again and obtain it again? God forbid Romans 9, 14, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Secondly, we need to consider then what free will is. Free agency is not free will. For our will is always in bondage to our nature. That nature we talked about last time that's totally depraved. We had to be freed from it for salvation to work. If we weren't freed from it, we are always in bondage to it. So too is God by design. The very term free will means unbound will, which we'll come back to in just a moment. A fish has the free agency to roam and do as it pleases underwater. That's its habitat. Its very body was created for its habitat. His entire nature is centered around it. One day this fish will not suddenly develop wings and fly out of the water never to return. Well, that sounds silly, Pastor. Evolution. It does sound silly. There's a lot of people that believe it. It does sound silly. Did you come from a tadpole or an ape? How could you if they still exist? And on and on and on we could go. Jeremiah 13.23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. We must understand that the free agency of man is merely an expression of his nature, not his ability to change or affect his circumstances. Furthering the importance of this great difference, let us remember the authorities that had imprisoned Paul in the book of Acts. As Paul witnessed to Felix, he commanded to know more concerning the faith in Christ. Upon expounding on righteousness, temperance, and judgment, and all these things that were to come, Felix was sorely afraid, according to the Scripture, but he answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a a convenient season, I will call for thee. Acts 24, verses 22 through 25. He was sorely afraid. Why did Felix not fall on his knees? Why did he not invite or let Christ save him right then and there? Sorely afraid. What more does it take to get this hard-hearted Felix to just invite Jesus in? To just let Jesus have his way or his steering wheel. God is absolutely holy. God cannot accept no less than absolute holiness. God will not dwell in the passenger seat of dear Felix's car, let alone take over his steering wheel, because Felix is not absolutely holy, at least in this present moment that we read about here in Acts 24. Two chapters later, Agrippa and his sister wife, Bernice, they come to town and they hear the powerful testimony of Paul, to which he responds in Acts twenty-six, twenty-eight. Almost, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And let me ask you this, did Paul fail at his witnessing? Paul's nature since Damascus Road, which was Acts 9, was to bear his soul for what Christ had done for him and in him. And he confesses his desire in the very next verse, in Acts twenty six twenty nine. Paul says, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Paul's new nature was a prisoner to the work of Christ. He writes this in Ephesians 3, 1, Ephesians 4, 1, 2 Timothy 1, 8, Philemon verse 1, and Philemon verse 9. Not only do we see him not depart from this here, but even in his closing comments, he does not seek his freedom, but rather theirs. Again, we see a great contrast. If you're familiar with Acts 26, Agrippa and his sister wife, they come in with great pomp and circumstance. The trumpets sound, the confetti hits the air. Here they come. Women crying, babies being kissed. All these mighty human beings that have come to town. And they request to hear old Paul's testimony. And how does Paul deliver it? Does he climb into yonder pulpit? Maybe one of one of Spurgeon's old pulpits, one of those that you climb up the narrow staircase and you get to look down to the people and deliver the message that God has given? No. Paul is likely on his knees in shackles on a dirty, maybe even wet ground. He's restrained. Because, you know, we preachers are so violent and so powerful. He's restrained, though his most powerful asset, being the word of God, is let loose. There's a great contrast between Agrippa, how he chooses to live, this sister wife of his, how he chooses to reign, and Lord willing, we'll have more time on that later as well, and this preacher, who is a prisoner of Christ, who's laying out the gospel as their most dire need. And old Felix, he just doesn't have enough time for it. And Agrippa, he's just not nearly persuaded enough. Is it the persuasion of men that is set about men to teach and preach the word of God? Do I attempt here today to persuade you, to change your mind? I preach... What the Lord's given me, I preach the word of God. I preach the truth. But I cannot change you. I cannot change your heart. I cannot force you to repent. And as we've said before, if I saved you, I'm charged to keep you. And you shall certainly fall. Did God fail to save these two men then? If it wasn't Paul's fault, surely it must be God's. God forbid. It is of God's goodness that he chose to save or show compassion to any we see God's mercy in Acts 26. Where preacher? Where is it? Paul yet liveth. Paul yet liveth. This Saul of Tarsus did not deserve life. This Saul of Tarsus consented to the death of many a martyr. The imprisonment imprisonment of both men and women forcing. Employing tactics to force a confession that Christ is not the Messiah. Damascus wrote there in Acts 9, he was set about to get the authority to do even more damage. He did not deserve life. And yet the Lord Jesus uh, was the, the administrator or the, the tool used and designed to save Saul. Acts 9, or rather Romans 9, verses 13 through 16, as it is written, we made reference to this Wednesday night, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Think of the Syrian army back in 2 Kings 6. Remember, Elisha is, uh, is telling the, the, the nation where to go, and the king of Syria is, uh, has been waging battle, looking to snuff them out for quite a while. And every time he's got a new plant, It seems that the nation of Israel already knows exactly where to go, exactly when to do it, and exactly how to hide. The king is convinced that there's a traitor in his midst, that someone is literally taking his plans to the enemy so that they can survive. His own soldiers have more faith than he does. There's a man of God in their camp. There's a man of God in their camp. Yes, they know our every move because there's a man of God in their camp. There's someone important to God over there. Maybe even all of them. But they got a man of God. Maybe even uh, we could look at this phrase as a man after God's own heart, such as David is described. They make their move, and Elisha's servant says, How shall we do, if you recall? What shall we do? They're everywhere. Their horses, their chariots, their weapons, their soldiers. What shall we do? What's Isaiah pray for, Isaiah? Elisha pray for. Destroy the enemy, God. Make them disappear. No. He prays for one. He prays for the servant. Let him see. Elisha doesn't, if we read 2 Kings 6, we can't for time's sake, but if we were to read 2 Kings 6, Elisha doesn't seem all that worried, does he? Let's, let's follow some math here. He knew every move that Syria was going to make because God had revealed it unto him, and God's immutable, so therefore Elisha likely knew they were coming. He likely knew that they were going to be surrounded long before it happened, and he still doesn't seem too shaken by it. The servant, maybe a picture of us, is quaking in his boots. What should we do? How shall we do? Where will we go? We're going to die. It's the same reason that Esther didn't want to talk to the king. Scepter's not been lifted in quite some time. Well, what cause for her to say, if I perish, I perish? The Lord let her see. Elisha's prayer for the servant let him see. And when his eyes were opened, he saw that there were greater on his side than there were against him. That the armies that fight for God's people, the armies that represent the absolute holiness of God, far outnumber the utter wickedness the evil imaginations only ever continual that never end they don't stand a chance against the holiness of god let us understand then that one with free will is to have unbound will or in other words they would be omnipotent we know of only one that meets this criteria and that's god i'm sorry for our fwbc friends down the road Man doesn't have free will. Man doesn't have unbound will. Ah, no. He doesn't. It was prophesied before Esau and Jacob were born that one would be loved and one would be hated. Don't you think the one that was hated would have wanted to change God's mind? Well, Golly, why didn't he? It's told throughout the Bible that it never changed. It was as immutable before their birth as it was years after their death. Well, why didn't it change? Because we don't have free will. We don't have unbound will. To have unbound will means we keep God in check rather than the other way around. Now, when he elects to choose some, we can say, "Uh uh-uh, not today. I don't want to be chosen. Or, you know what? I'd like to be chosen, and then tomorrow change your minds and cross it back out again. It would look like some of my sermon outlines rather than the book of life. We don't have unbound will. Does that mean God is fully unbound or free to operate? Yeah, it's within his nature. But Titus 1, 2 tells us God cannot lie. Both Ezekiel and Malachi, God confesses he cannot lie, he cannot steal, he cannot cheat. He cannot be inequitable. God is kept in check by something. This means that his underlying attribute that controls and navigates his every decision and his every move is not power. Because if it was power, he could lie. If it was power, he could steal and cheat. He could be inequitable, and he wouldn't have to care. He'd be kind of like an American president these days. But that's not the God that we serve. He is holy beyond all else, before all else, and to the end and beyond all else. He is absolutely holy. This doesn't speak of a lesser power. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. But all of that is kept in check by the fact that he's absolutely holy. Ezekiel 18, 29, O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? We're not questioning God's power, but illustrating his holiness. Again, for us, it makes sense that, well, if one is more than what we thought it was, the other must be less. That's how it tends to work in our nature. But this isn't our nature. It's God's. The Bible brings to light a God that has for his primary underlying attribute that of holiness. The false doctrine of free will demands a God that has for his primary underlying attribute that of omnipotence, one that only seeks to rule. If he only sought to rule, then that whole portion of uh, the Lord's ministry where he's tempted by Satan, that'd look a lot different, wouldn't it? What did Satan offer him? He would have been appealing to one like himself that desired power. Our God doesn't desire power. For one thing, he has all of it. And for two, well, I don't want to give that one away. We'll get there in just a moment. Our God has both attributes, but again, his primary will rule or affect his actions. Here's the test. Does God seek to merely rule and dominate his creation or to be a father and fellowship with his creation? When we read through scripture, what seems to be the most likely answer to that test does he seek to rule and dominate or to be a father in fellowship? We could read countless examples. One of my favorites is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Be ye holy, for I am holy, where we started. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. 7 verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. This is Paul's Portion of it that's speaking directly to the church of Corinth. This is a God that desires to be our Father. One that we would cry out, Daddy, Daddy, or Abba Father unto. One that we would look to for comfort, for leadership, for correction. That whole profitability thing that we looked at last time and last week in Sunday school in 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17. This word is profitable for all those things. That we would be thoroughly furnished, if you recall. That we would be about good works that we were thoroughly or completely prepared to do. And to be completely prepared to do it, we have an understanding of why we do it. And that is to glorify and honor God. Because he's absolutely holy. That is to desire to be holy because we recognize him to be Holy. Recall in Genesis 3, the same chapter as the sentencing that we looked at in our Genesis study of man, it closes with a statement on atonement, like we've referenced here recently. Genesis 3, verses 21 through 23. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Oh, God was ashamed of their nakedness, right? Is that what we read in Genesis 3, that God was ashamed of their nudity? No, man was ashamed of his nudity. Man was ashamed of repentance. Man was ashamed of holiness. Just all of the sudden, man goes from contentment to discontentment, including with himself, with creation, with God. But the mercy of God here shows that he slayed some of his own creation to cover them. Coats of skins had to come from somewhere. The Lord shed blood to cover them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. A God that was ruled by his power rather than his absolute holiness would have said, You disappointed me. You're fired. You're done. Maybe instead of letting them out of the garden and then setting up the burning, fiery sword and, 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 the, and the protective angels, maybe he leaves them in the garden, saying this will only go so far. I am absolutely powerful, and because that is my underlying attribute, you will not be released from the garden. Or maybe, as Steve referenced this morning, he just speaks them out of existence, just as easily as he spoke them into existence. If he was ruled by his absolute power, why wouldn't he do such a thing? Have you ever thought, why would he spare any from his wrath? Why would he allow man to go for six and 7,000 more years when he'd already failed? The message Steve preached in my absence was absolutely correct. All of this is still trying to handle one sin. All of this, everything we know of the Lord's ministry, the, the, the parade around the lakes and the feedings and all of that, still one sin. That caused all of this. If he was ruled by absolute power, he absolutely could have handled this problem. If he didn't desire to have a relationship with man, if he didn't desire to be our father, and his primary underlying attribute was power, he'd exercise it. And then maybe, like Lamech, write a little poem about it. He doesn't have to show mercy. Not based on our uh, qualifications for it. He has to show mercy because he's absolutely holy. And therefore, we should desire holiness as well. Recall also that rather than destroying man in all life in Genesis 6, God sought to show grace through Noah. Rather than leave his chosen people in bondage to Egypt, God used Moses to lead them out. Rather than leave them wandering in the wilderness, God used Joshua to bring them to the promised land. Rather than to leave us to drown in depravity, serving the world, we call now for God to use this same immutable attribute to show mercy, to grant repentance, to cause revival in our hearts, in our lives. For further proof, look at Romans 9.14, which we read just a moment ago. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Who forbids this characteristic of God? Who forbids uh, an unrighteous act of God? He does. There's something in God's nature that forbids it. Because we see here, God forbid. The proof is in the pudding. God's holiness is keeping his own omnipotence at bay. His free agency is the very expression of his nature, as we defined it earlier. He shows mercy and has compassion in the same exact way, as he sees fit according to his nature of absolute holiness. So what what of us then, as we consider this posture of God, and we should be most grateful for this posture of God. We should be grateful, let's put it in a pictorial sense, we should be very, 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 very grateful that it is Christ Jesus that is seen standing at the right hand of God and not God standing. It would be very different if God the Father were standing at every act of man. But the Son of Mercy is the one that Deacon Stephen sees standing at the right hand of God. This one who stands as our intercessor, a go-between. And he goes between what? God and man. That absolute holiness required the Lord Jesus Christ. That absolute holiness dictated that there be a lamb that God provided for himself. That absolute holiness, I believe, if we look back at Genesis 22, is what Abraham was beginning to see and understand and fall before. He rose up early and prepared to sacrifice his own son. Why? Because he believed God to be absolutely holy. He told the servants, we will be back. Why? Because he believed God to be absolutely holy. He told his son when he said, where's the sacrifice that God will provide himself a lamb? How could he believe that? He was told of God to, to offer his son as a burnt sacrifice because God is absolutely holy. And God would forbid himself to be any other way. Satan's ad agency working overtime, tempting man to believe that we can choose what we are. The strategy is brilliant because even so called Christians who are deceived by this evolve their understanding of God. There's a lot of proof. The uh, most obvious one this time of year is the fact that some of you or some of your neighbors who ought to know better are going to put masks on kids and send them out in the dark. This same darkness that you wouldn't let your kids go run around this day and age because people can't be trusted. You're going to put them in a mask and let them run around and take candy from strangers. That's real smart. Is that wise as serpents or harmless as doves? It also is the reason that many Baptists, so-called, partake in Christmas now. It wasn't always the case. It wasn't always the case. We used to recognize where it came from. We used to recognize the harlot by her fruits. But now we say, it's kind of tasty. Think I'll hang this fruit off my bow. I might hang this fruit around my fireplace. I might lie to my children and tell them about some strange old man who's going to come and put treats in their stockings. We don't even wear stockings anymore. And we find them hung about mantles. Understand where these things come from and be done. Don't wait for a good excuse to walk away from the traditions of man. You have one. He hung on the cross. And he said, if it were not so, I would have told you. And that works both ways. If it were so. If do my birthday in remembrance of me were a fact, he'd have told us to do it. He'd have told us how to do it. And you know what else he would have done? He'd have told us when to do it. We can't even wrap our heads around the fact that it was three days and three nights. And he gave us pictures and types for that one. But somehow we're so comfortable putting Christ back in Christmas... We ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We require of the Lord to water the fleece and then the land and then the fleece and then the land over and over and over again. Surely I shouldn't be at every service. Surely I shouldn't tie the full 10%. Surely I shouldn't. Surely I shouldn't. Surely I shouldn't. And then when the Lord says, Wherein? You say, What? You couldn't possibly be talking about me. He is. He is talking about you because you're His. He's not talking about the little lost heathens that will never be saved. He's talking about his elect. When he says come out from among them, he's talking to the church of Corinth. He's talking to Christians. Paul didn't go around telling everybody that in Athens. Come out from among them, come out from among them. He told them about the one God they didn't know anything about. Doctrine's not based on feeling. Praise God. It's based on facts. Here's another example. If I can be that which I'm not created to be, I have the power of free will to choose. If I'm made in God's image, he too must have the ability to choose, making him now mutable. If he's choosing and unchoosing constantly, then I can lose favor in the sight of his power or omnipotence to choose. That's just four sentences. And we went a long, long way with just the idea that free will is a thing. I'm not telling you to scoff or scorn or humiliate the FWBCs down the road. I'm telling you to pray for them. They've been lied to. They've bought into it. Maybe we're wrestling with a little bit of that here today. But listen, since God's immutable, he cannot change. The truth confessed in Genesis 1 stays true all the way to the end of this book. Thus, he has always been the same. He's always been absolutely holy. When we see different events throughout the Bible, different stories, different uh, uh, times or characters, we can always know that God is the hero of that story because he's never not going to be. He's not an anti hero, he's not one who's edgy. He's always absolutely holy. This absolute attribute of his nature dictates him completely. Thus, all that has been predetermined by the counsel of his will shall never change and shall always be absolutely holy. His every action, free agency, must therefore support and protect and express his nature. In Ezekiel 36, which we referenced everything around it, I think, in Sunday school, we find a prophecy of the mighty work of God was to do in reuniting the nation of Israel and making them fruitful once more. In Isaiah 33 and 35, we see there's something missing. How does does the creation from Isaiah 33 become Isaiah 35? And this is what set up this whole study. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verses 21 through 22. God speaking, I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Think about that for a minute. They didn't just profane it in their prayer closets. They didn't just profane it in how they taught their kids. They profaned it everywhere they went. That's what God said from his perspective, as we've looked at, and now seeing it from his posture, he sees that his chosen have profaned his holy name everywhere they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. The very events that Steve taught on today, when life is restored, when there's fruit yet again, that's not done for Israel. It's not because they finally did it. They finally come around. They finally get who God is. If if anyone, Jew or otherwise, receives Christ, it's because God loved them first. It's because God gave them Christ. It will be no different. It can't be any different because God forbids it. The truth about our free agency is that man cannot do otherwise than to continue in sin so long as he is in his natural state. He'll continue in it. He'll continue loving it. He'll continue enjoying it. You may think, what of the good offerings and deeds I did while yet lost? Job 14.4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one you're not going to burn anything as far as an offering and get righteousness from God. Jesus said in John 6, verse 65, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses 7 through 8, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, we see both brought offerings, but one was respected. Why? God explained to Cain that sin lieth at the door. God explained that he saw it that he was defiled by it, and as long as it resided there, it would rule over his desires. In this case, it affected a sin offering before the Lord. Rather than a blood offering, he brought forth fruit of the land. God is absolutely holy and cannot receive honor from inequity. I urge you to repent today. If sin is found at your door, it will rule over your desires. It will cause for you to rebel against God, country, family, mom, dad. And moms and dads, you're not doing God any favor when you continue to be mutable over every little thing. If you've laid down a biblical law in your home, if you've said, as for me and my house, we will serve and honor the Lord, trust in him. Stand on that fact. Don't bow because they're your little precious babies. You know what little precious babies that have been bowed down to turn into? Adult monsters. Politicians. he he males and she-things and all these weird things that we see that are abominable and have been since the beginning of the word of God. Oh, my feelings. Don't care. You called me here to preach the truth. Hear it. You are called to lead your homes, dads. I guess there's only three of us now in the room. You're called to lead your homes. If you've got adult children residing there that don't honor God, you have the authority to release them, to put them out. Oh, I'm sorry. hundred years ago, that wouldn't have needed to be preached. We don't live a hundred years ago. We have snowflakes now right here in Mississippi. Beloved, honor God. Follow God pursue after God. There is a them that we're called to come out from. There is traditions of men that we are called to be done with. And there are things that we are called to abstain from the appearances of. Let us do our diligence to identify and repent today while there's still time to do so. We pray and fall on the mercies of God.